wonderful truth from that song, the Lord our God shall bless us, our God shall blessing send, and all the earth shall fear him to his remote, to its remotest end. That's why we gather here this morning together, is to hear the Lord bless us, that the Lord blesses us in this time. He blesses us with the reading of his word and the confession of our sins as we bring them to God, and he cleanses us, and he blesses us as he brings his word to us now in the reading and the preaching of his word. That's why we are here this morning. So turn with me now as we turn to hear the preaching of God's word in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, is where our text this morning will come from. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father Jethro, father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this, is the, this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, Ag of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. Let's call on him now to speak to us. Our Father in heaven, we gather this morning to hear you speak to us through your word and through the preaching of your word. Or we are those who need strength for our lives. We are those who need hope for our days. We need encouragement to face our own failures, our own sins, and Lord, to face a world that is turned against us, that is so enticing at times for us. So Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts now through your Holy Spirit to receive your word with faith, that it might build us up and strengthen us to walk in lives worthy of you, resting and trusting in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning is a famous passage, Moses and the Burning Bush. Many of you have heard this story, read this passage, or you have heard of this story of Moses encountering a flaming bush in the middle of the desert and where God reveals his name to the people of Israel, where he gives it to Moses to declare to the people of Israel. I'd like to look at this text in three ways this morning. So if you like to use an outline to follow along, these are my points for the sermon to help you as a guide. The first point is God reveals himself. And then the second point is the purpose, the purpose of God revealing himself. And the third point is the hope of God revealing himself, the hope. And the point of this sermon this morning is that God is a God who reveals himself. He does not leave himself hidden and unable to find him. That he shows himself to his people. And we'll see the purpose that he does that for this morning from Exodus 3. But this passage begins, we're three chapters deep in the book of Exodus. You don't normally pick up a story three chapters in. You normally start at chapter one, sometimes even an introduction. So to help us as we think about how this passage applies to us this morning, I'd like to help us review how we got here to Exodus chapter three. What's happened thus far and what does that mean for us as we begin to think about this passage for our lives? The people of Israel have been in captivity or have been in the land of Egypt now for 400 years, over 400 years after Joseph and his family and the families of Jacob, his father, Isaac, or Jacob, his father, Israel, have been brought down to Egypt. And they have multiplied and become great in the land of Egypt. But Exodus tells us that a new pharaoh, a new king arises in Egypt that does not like the people of Israel. They're becoming numerous. He can't control them. And so now he makes them his slaves. He implements all these ways of making their work difficult and to rule over them. And the people of Israel cry out to God to give them relief from their sufferings and from the oppression that this king is placing upon the people of Israel, the people of God. And then this man Moses, God begins to raise up this man Moses who God providentially preserves through the hands of his parents. And Moses is raised in the courts of Pharaoh. An Israelite, a man hated by these people, now is adopted into this family. He's raised, he's likely trained in instruction of what it means to be a good Egyptian. 
But Moses holds on to his faith, and one day he sees a Egyptian taskmaster beating one of the Hebrew people. And Moses goes and defends this man and ends up killing him and tries to cover this up so that it wouldn't be known. But it becomes known, and Moses has to flee. It tells us in chapter 2 that when Pharaoh heard of this, that he sought to kill Moses. So Moses flees for his life out into the wilderness, into the land of Midian, that is east of the land of Egypt. And there Moses lives, and he meets this man Jethro, and he marries one of his daughters. And he's living there as a shepherd of Jethro. Now, for us this morning, we might wonder, how does this relate to my life? How do I see myself in this passage today? What does this mean for me? Well, I think we can begin to relate to this, that we live in a world that is in opposition against us as Christians. That this world, we know this quite intimately, that it is quickly turning against us. That we fear for our jobs. We fear that we might lose our jobs if we say the wrong things about the particular issues of the day. Transgenderism, the rainbow flag, or whether that's we speak against the wrong political opponents. Or we fear that we might do something in our lives that brings hardship on us. But we also fear just the natural things that we face every day in our lives, whether that's our own physical suffering and the ways that that tells us and makes us think that God is not present with us in our lives. And so how do we find hope and encouragement in this passage as we struggle through this life in a way that is similar to the people of Israel in Egypt. And our hope begins this morning that God reveals himself to us. And it begins with Moses as a shepherd. It tells us, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. This is a humbling moment for, for Moses himself. His life has been brought from the highest of positions in the whole land, a son, an adopted son of the king of the superpower of the world, And now he's a shepherd, something despised by the Egyptians, and he is shepherding his father-in-law's flocks. These aren't even his flocks. He owns nothing. He has gone from the highest position in the world, one of the highest positions, now to one of the lowliest positions, a man who has no belongings, no possessions to himself. And he's shepherding this flock on the west side of the mountain. Now, We might not think much about why it says the west side of the mountain, but if you know anything about shepherding and you know anything about climates in this part of the world, the west side of the mountain is the rainy side. The east side of a mountain in that part of the world is the dry side. And it's likely on the latter part of the year when it becomes drier and drier. And so you're seeking pasture for your sheep so that they can feed. And so he goes around to the west side of the mountain. As a Southern Californian, myself, growing up there in a climate that is almost identical to Israel, I know this intimately, that later and later as the year progresses, the west side of the mountains stay a little bit greener, while the east side of the mountains dry out and become tinder dry. And by October, anytime there is a spark in those hills around the cities, we fear, because it is a tinderbox where that fire can blow through and wipe out entire hillsides and even neighborhoods in a moment. We've seen, I've seen this in my own life. 
where just a simple spark at that time of year is very destructive. So Moses, I'm sure, understands what's happening here. There's a fire. This is no small matter that he sees going around to the west side of the mountain. But when he sees this fire, the text tells us something very interesting about it, very unique about this flame. It says, the, Lord of, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of fire, out of the midst of the bush, and he looked, and the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. There is no ash falling from this bush burning. Now, if you're in a dry climate, like Southern California, or in Israel, those bushes burn up instantly. That it is a matter of seconds until that bush is burnt up and it is nothing left on the ground in front of you. Yet here it continues to burn and burn, but it persists. What is the meaning of this bush burning? Well, Many people, theologians and commentators on Scripture, have had lots of various interpretations about what are we to understand from this burning bush. Well, the first thing we know is that there is the angel of the Lord present in this bush. And that tells us that God's presence is always mediated to us. There was always something between us and God. God's presence is not something that can be immediately brought to bear upon us. If we were in the immediate presence of God, we would be incinerated before him. Yet the angel of the Lord is there, present in it. If we were to stand in the direct presence of the Lord, we would not live. Exodus 33, and another passage that explains the meaning of God's name, says this, God says this to Moses, he says, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And this is why Isaiah, when he has a vision of the temple of the Lord, entering into his presence, that the angels themselves cover their eyes and cover their feet, because they cannot endure the presence of the Lord without Something mediating, standing between them and God. Above the Lord, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. No creature can endure God's direct, unmediated presence. Only God himself can be in his own presence. Yet something fascinating is happening here. This bush is not consumed. This bush continues to persist. And God is revealing to Moses in this moment that God, through his mediator, can dwell without consuming. That he can dwell without destroying. And this is a hopeful picture that begins to be unrevealed to Moses that the holy, righteous God can dwell without consuming and destroying. And he's seeing this in a picture of a flame on a thorny bush. But then God speaks to him, calls out to him in an invitation. Moses, Moses, this is God calling Moses yet to draw near to his presence. And Moses responds, here am I. And God declares who he is. 
And he tells him some instructions. Take off your sandals from your feet. Now, we might think this is a strange thing to do. Why would he take off his sandals from his feet? Well, if you have ever been to somebody's house that has white carpet, you know what it's like to walk into that house with your shoes on. And they know what it's like when you forget to take your shoes off. Because when they walk in the house, you immediately bring your dirt all over it. And it is apparent everywhere that you have traveled in that house where your feet touch. And this is why oftentimes people will say, you can take your shoes off at the door because I don't want you bringing the filth in around this house. Take your shoes off from your feet. And this is what God is showing to Moses. That you cannot enter the presence of the Lord with our filth. It is a picture to him that we must be holy in order to enter God's presence. And so God gives him this sign to show Moses that he is entering the presence of the Lord. And so he must take off his feet, his shoes from his feet. That he cannot bring his dirty feet that he's been following behind these sheep for days on end, bringing the muck that comes with them. He's showing him, you cannot bring your filth into my presence. This teaches us that God is holy. He is a holy God, as we read in our passage of confession of sin this morning. He's not like us. This world wants to make God like us. They want to bring God down to our level. If God says, I am not like you, when you enter in my presence, you must be different. Hebrews 12 says that, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We don't presume in God's presence. We don't enter, in one sense, just as we are. We don't enter lightly into God's presence as we come to worship him each Sunday, each Lord's Day. One of the greatest troubles of our modern times is the seeker-sensitive movement, something that is rightly seeking to bring people into church, but they try and dumb down the holiness of God's presence as people enter into it. And they bring the destruction of the transcendence of God's majesty as they bring it down to a human level. And sometimes we treat worship like it's just going to the store. Like I am just going here to go shopping and grab something. We do not come casually to God's presence. We are entering the presence of the holy God. As Hebrews 12 tells us. Yet, there is a sense in which it is true that we do come as we are. We're sinners. We cannot rid ourselves of our sin. And the amazing thing that this passage begins to teach us is that God invites Moses, a sinner, into his presence. He addresses his personal name, Moses, Moses. And God says, come as you are with your sin, that it might be cleansed. So we come before this holy God who begins to reveal himself to us, that he is a fire, he is a flame, he is a consuming fire. Yet he begins to teach us that he is a God who can dwell and not consume us. But what is the purpose of this? 
What is the purpose of God beginning to reveal his name to the people of Israel through his servant Moses? That's our second point this morning, the purpose of God revealing himself. And the purpose of this, as God begins to tell us in verse 7 and following, is that he is revealing himself to Moses to save his people. Throughout Scripture, whenever God reveals himself, he is doing it in order to save his people. Over and over again, when God shows up, it is for salvation. And ultimately, we see this in Jesus when he comes. I have not come to judge the world, but through me that I might save the world. And God tells us that he knows the tribulation of his people. I know their sufferings. God heard their cries. He tells Moses this. I'm sure many of us are here this morning and we have sufferings. And we wonder, does God hear my cry? Does God hear when I cry out to him and the sufferings I'm going through in my life and in my day? And this passage assures us that God hears. God hears our cries. God hears and sees our sufferings. And this is why God has come down to act on our behalf. I know their sufferings. And in verse eight, I have come down. He acts to deliver them. He calls his deliverer, Moses, to now go to rescue his people. And this is why God makes himself known. The purpose of him making himself known is to deliver his people. But Moses, like you and I, does not understand. Moses can't believe that he would be called. Who am I? Who am I, Lord, that you would use me to rescue your people, to go deliver them? One can imagine that Moses is thinking, I'm just a shepherd. I don't have anything. I have nothing. I shepherd my father-in-law's flock. I got run out of Egypt, and if I go back there, they're going to kill me. Why in the world would you send me? I am a nobody. I have no power. And this is how we think, how us as humans think about defeating powerful enemies. As we think that we need to be powerful. Moses says, I'm nobody. I don't have any power. If I was powerful, then it would make sense to use me. Yet, how does God answer Moses? As one commentator says, does God reassure Moses with his educational background, his leadership potential, and his talents? Don't worry, Moses, you've got it in you. That's not what God does. God does not point to Moses' inner worth. And say, you just need to look inside yourself, Moses, and you really need to realize your potential of what you can do. That is not what God says to Moses. It's almost as if God is affirming Moses in what Moses is objecting. Yes, Moses, I know you're useless. And that's why I'm going to use you. So how does God answer him? I've heard their cry. I've seen their oppression. Come, I will send you. And God says, but I will 
be with you. Why am I sending you? It's not because you're great or powerful or you have all the resources in yourself. It's because I'm going to be with you. God is assuring Moses that it is God's presence alone that will support him as he goes to seek to deliver the people of Israel. And this is the strength for all of us as we live in a world that is in opposition against us as Christians. Do you think that God will abandon you? Do you think that God will leave you helpless against the enemies of this world? Do you think that God cannot at a moment turns men, turn men's hearts toward himself? He is the Lord who brought an entire nation through the middle of a desert. He is the Lord who routed the armies of Syria through four lepers. By simply hearing the sound of these lepers walking towards them. The armies of one of the greatest nations. God turned them away. And how often our faith falters in the face of the trials of this world. Because we don't reflect upon the fact that God is with us. Yet this single promise alone is sufficient to support us through all the trials of our life. That God is with us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And God is the God who promises and fulfills his promise. He gives Moses a sign. This is how you know that I will be with you. That you'll come back to this mountain with all the people of Israel. And now he's teaching Moses to trust his promises. He doesn't say... Here's a sign that I'm with you. I'm going to give you all this strength and power. No, you need to trust me that I'm going to bring you to where I have promised. You will know after it's done. And that requires faith of Moses. And that requires faith from us to trust in God that he is faithful. And what's at the heart here is God's faithfulness. Will God be faithful to me? Will God be faithful to you throughout all the troubles and trials that you face in this life? And this provokes Moses' next question. Is God going to be faithful to his promises? How do I know that I can trust this God? How do the people of Israel know that they can trust God? How do they know they can trust me? And this is the hope, our third point this morning. God's name for a hopeless people. See, Moses is saying, what about your people? You are promising that you will be with me, but your people will have a hard time believing. They've been crying out to you. Where is the Lord? We're suffering. And this revelation that God gives to Moses is given to a people who are hopeless. But it's important for us to think about what God doesn't do. God does not give Moses some kind of physical form for himself. Yes, there is a fire, but the fire itself is not God. The fire has distinguished itself from the angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord is in the fire, but it is not the fire itself. 
God doesn't assure him, look, here I am physically present. God speaks to him. What does God do for Moses in this time? How do I know these people can trust that you are going to be faithful? If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God gives him his name. This is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I want you and the people of Israel to know who I am. But it's important for us to reflect on why names are important. Names are very important. God doesn't just simply say, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could have said simply that, but he doesn't. He tells them something more specific about who he is. And names are important because it's the way that we relate with people. What is the very first question you ask when you meet somebody? What kind of car do you drive? How big is your house? How many kids do you have? How much money is your bank account? That would be a terrible way to relate with somebody. We would immediately stop the conversation and say, nice talking to you, but I'm out. No, the very first question we ask is, What is your name? That is how we reveal ourselves to others. And that is how we relate with them. It is how we identify each other. That's why we don't like social security numbers. Because it's not who I am. I am not a number. That is not who I am. You just said, well, you're 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. That would feel very impersonal. And it's why we want to run and hide when we forget somebody's name, right? That feeling at the end of church when you think, I met this person, but I can't remember their name. And it's that personal relationship that the name is the key to. It's how we call on people. It's how we ask them for help. It's not just simply, I need help. I need your help. When I call on your name, it's your help that I want and that I need. But what does this name mean? Now, this is a question that has troubled and confounded the brightest minds, so I don't presume to be among those people today. But it is something that God reveals his name to the people of Israel. But God doesn't immediately give Moses the answer. He later does. He does say, this is the name you will give to the people of Israel. I am. But before that, he says this. What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. God defines his own name. God is the one who defines who he is. And he does not define himself by anything else outside of himself. He is. I am. God is the one who is. I am the God who is God, no matter what else is going on in this world around you. I am. And God explains to Moses his name. He wants to explain who he is. Who am I? I am. 
Or as some of your texts will footnote and say, I will be who I will be. I will continue to be God no matter what happens in this world. I am always God and I will always continue to be God. This is God's eternity that is revealed in this name. The God of your fathers will continue to be God. He will continue to exist as God and none can thwart him. And that is where the comfort comes in for the people of God in the midst of all their suffering in this life. That God, who is our God, continues to be God, continues to be who he is, and none can thwart him. He is everlasting from everlasting. He is always God. And in the words of Martin Luther and the great hymn, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And we have the name of the Lord as our firm anchor in the midst of the tribulations and trials of this world. The eternal everlasting God is our God who has given his name to us to call upon. And that is exactly what the people of Israel needed in their suffering and in their slavery. They need to hear the sovereign, unchanging God before whom all things existed and in whom all things hold together is now the one who gives you his name to call upon. And by giving his name to his people, he is saying, I am for you. I am who I am for you. I am the God of this universe, of all creation, and I am for you. That is the hope of God's name. God has given his name to us that he will always be with us, just as he promised to Moses. I will be with you. And that is the comfort of his name in the midst of our trials and tribulations that we face in this life. But it is a comfort to us in our own slavery. The people of Israel are a picture to us of life under sin. There are people who are enslaved to sin, who cannot free themselves. They need someone greater to come set them free. And this is who we are under the power of sin. Only God alone can set us free from our sin. We have brought ourselves into this enslavement and we cannot lead ourselves out. Yet, God has sent his mediator who has revealed his name to us. I am in the person of Jesus Christ to deliver us from the power of this world, but more importantly, from the power of our own slavery to sin. That God has revealed his deliverer. See, Jesus Christ is the true angel of God. 
who has descended. John chapter 6, verse 38 says, Jesus says to the people, for I have come down. I have come down from heaven, not to do the will, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus has come down and he has claimed God's name for himself. John 8 says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said this, that Jesus was claiming to be this same God that was revealed to Moses. And so they picked up stones to try and kill him. They thought Jesus was blaspheming. Well, the only way Jesus would be blaspheming is if he wasn't actually God. Yet we know that Jesus is God, as John chapter 1 tells us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus is the name that has been given to us by which every person in this world can be saved. God's fiery, consuming presence is now bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has clothed himself with flesh and blood in Jesus to save us. The only one that can save us from God's fiery presence is Jesus Christ himself. And the reason he took on this flesh and blood, he took our form on himself, was so that he could take the fiery judgment that we all deserve. That we are those who have intruded into God's presence with our shoes on our feet. And we should have been smote and consumed instantly. Yet Jesus Christ has been revealed to us. And he has been revealed to us so that he can bring us into God's presence. That we can dwell with the holy God. We who have no holiness in ourselves. No righteousness of our own. By which we can stand before God. Jesus Christ alone gives that to us freely in himself. This is why we don't simply just believe in Jesus' righteousness. We believe in Jesus, because he is the one who is our mediator, who stands before us and God. And he does this so that you and I can be like the bush on that mountain, burning, but not consumed. And that is the hope that you and I have. That we can stand in God's presence and be not consumed. And we can have confidence in the midst of all this world that the God who would consume all things does not consume us, his people, because we have Jesus Christ. That we have looked to him and trust him alone. And we have confidence that the God, the great I am, is with us. Because Jesus Christ dwells in our hearts through faith and is always with us. As Jesus tells us at the end of Matthew, Lo, I am with you 
until the end of the age. If Jesus Christ is with us, we have nothing to fear in this world. This world, though with devils filled, threatens to undo us. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, trust in Jesus and rest in him. He is your hope. God will bring you home to be with him. And he has proven this by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And Christ dwells in his presence today. So rest and trust in Jesus Christ. Have confidence that he will bring you through any and every trial in this life that you face. Yes, it may feel like fire, but God is the one who is the true consuming fire, and he has promised that he will not consume us, but he will save us. Let's rest and trust in our Savior today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have given to us to save us and to deliver us from our sin. And Lord, we rejoice that you have given us your name, the great I Am, to call upon you when we are in trials and tribulations and distresses of this world. Fill our hearts with faith to look to you and trust in your promises that you have given to us. We look to you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior. and Be with us always. It is in your precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.